A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. The Sanctioned State by Edward Doger The Sanctioned State This is deliberate ruin. Here we must imagine her, the symbol of sanctity, from the guesswork of chisel and shot, the removed particulars of lips, nose, eyes, We have to assume her identity from the effort taken to remove it. The lack of evidence is evidence of the belief that belief can be beaten out of stone. It sustains. Lord Cromwell remains alive in the currency of language. Warts and all, he stands over us, plinthed. And protected, a part of what he fought for and against, the balanced argument of history. We cannot live then. Today, the converted church of an all bar one desecrates nothing. We can distinguish one thing from another. Jesus is not Muhammad. Here, not there. We have the freedom to be appalled for the obsolete God, for the significance destroyed in the columns of Baal's temple. We can all agree that this is wrong, but there is no we, no consensus, just my own finger pointing at an imagined face. Ed, where did this poem come from? I think it came from a few different things. Um, On the one hand, it came specifically from seeing uh, an icon um, on a road in East Anglia that had been desecrated. Um, So a statue Mm -hmm. that had, had been partially destroyed and it also came I think from a wider set of thinking that I was doing when I was writing this poem which is part of um, a sequence of poems that became um, the pamphlet for now um, where I was quite interested in general about what 
um, statues represent for us, mm-hmm. what art represents for us in terms of the collective imagination, the ability to um, hold versions of um, collective belief, but mm-hmm. through particular instances. Um, so in the collection, there's another poem called Caryatids, which um, looks at the the architectural and um, sculptural form of of women holding up uh, holding up roofs, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. which allows one to perhaps consider the the way in which the female body is then used both for gaze, male gaze, let's say, um, as well as within kind of social and architectural uh, space that is often defined, defined by a sort of patriarchal structure. So I guess that poem was already in the back of my mind to a degree when I was started to think about um, this sculpture of the Virgin Mary. And we know it's the Virgin Mary simply because it has been so powerfully destroyed. Um, The kind of, the gender, for instance, of this statue is visible to us by our inability to see it. Um, and I was quite struck by the power of that. Um, so this poem, to a certain extent, focuses on uh, what isn't there um, in the work of art that um, becomes symbol and remains symbol. Um, so it wasn't made to be destroyed, but we make it in our society as something that has been destroyed into something new. So this was a, an icon, a statue of the Virgin Mary by the roadside in England? Yes, in the east of England. And how old was it? Um, Roughly. I'm not sure, um, but it would have been destroyed in the English Civil War um, when... Right. Um, by Cromwell's soldiers. So the the point in the poem which picks up uh, Cromwell, and obviously mm-hmm. Cromwell's statue is um, is very prominently displayed outside of the Houses of Parliament. Um, yeah, and uh, on the statue is his warts and all depiction, which mm-hmm. is a phrase that he asked the painter. Uh, I think it's potentially apocryphal, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, right for when when he was sitting for a for a portrait um i guess he was being asked like how would you like to be depicted and he mm-hmm. said warts and all because he famously had warts on his face right so you say this is deliberate ruin at the beginning so this is cromwell's soldiers who would have been of the puritanical bent were very much against this kind of what they would have seen as graven images indeed yeah. Remnants of Catholicism in England. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, uh, 
I suppose, in a relatively simplistic way, links back to um, at the time I was writing um, what was happening in Iraq and Syria relating to right. uh, the desecration of uh, various um, antiquities mm-hmm. by ISIS and um, and that kind of link between the then and now and what might be happening there and also the degree to which we other and distinguish those thens and nows uh so the degree to which um we in inverted commas think about them um in inverted Mm -hmm. commas and those kind of um rather easy and clumsy distances that we create Mm-hmm. that are um, potentially very, very harmful. And again, just for context, for now, the pamphlet that this appears in, this was published in 2017, wasn't it? So, yeah. in other words, before the recent hoo-ha, outrage and debate over what are statues for, what do they represent? So here in Bristol, where I live, yeah. Famously, the statue of Edward Colston was thrown into the harbour just mm. down the road. So, it, you know, they are very much charged objects, aren't they, even to this day? Absolutely. And I guess there's something that interests me is the relation between the notion of public and private in art. So statues are very obviously and very easily used as, as uh, public displays mm-hmm. yeah um and reading and literature is very often thought of as very private um but obviously in the context of everything that's written in this poem and and what's underwriting the the vociferous acts of violence in the poem uh actually comes from written text you know it's only because of the bible it's only because of the quran mm-hmm. um which you know that are motivating these these very, very violent and turbulent acts. Mm -hmm. So clearly there we see something that is often thought of as very private, certainly when we consider something like, you know, contemporary lyric poetry in the English language tradition. We very often think of that as an internalised activity of private um, communion between ourselves and either the text or the poet. which obviously a lot of other communities and and other traditions very often don't think, you know, I mean, that isn't the living tradition in a lot of other cultures, but it is the predominant one, I think, in the English language. And, Mm -hmm. um, and yet it is a sort of false, false distinction in a certain way. I think that we, we, uh, allow the, 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 that private notion of reading, um, to ourselves become agents in the world that that are acting through um through the arguments that we've read um we embody them you know mm-hmm. so we've got to be quite careful about what we read and, and how well we read it <laughs> yeah um, yeah 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 and where do you see yourself in a poem like this you know because as you've said you know the the conventional mode of poetry in english at least since the Romantics has been the private lyric, mm. expressing my own private thoughts and feelings and so on, and maybe doing it in a, 
in an artfully and self-conscious way because it's going to be out there in public. But you've got quite a different stance here. So I was curious about how do you see yourself as a poet when you're speaking with this voice? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess to a certain extent, these poems came about through um, something of a, a considering of the dilemma of the right to lyric voice when you're when you're talking ethically. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you were to speak about social and political issues how can you do that in an ethical manner with the lyric eye? Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the points that I wanted to look at was how to interrogate that sort of inherent perspectivism, um, which isn't to sort of replace it with a notion of um, some objective view of truth, you know, which is stable and, and singular, but rather to um, to find a way of speaking and a way of writing that accommodated the erosion and reality still of an eye so in the in in the collection there there are eyes there are instances of um, a speaker who presents as as the first person but they are um troubled in various ways or ironized in certain ways and this comes from the reading that i was doing at the time which was predominantly of eastern european and east german poetry um i was very interested in Sidney herbert um a, a great many of the gdr poets um and rosowicz um, who I still don't know how to pronounce correctly, actually. I hope I haven't murdered that voice, um, that name. Well, you know better than I do, so. <laughs> um, and the the tradition that that, that that had developed there, but I felt in order to do that with honesty and integrity, one needed to reflect on the dilemma of appropriating um the style of distance that they allow and create. Um, so there are some poems, and for now there's two poems that are experiments in bad faith. They're kind of subtitled as. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially a kind of attempt to investigate the degree to which the, the way that I was using a style um inherently had the danger and capacity to be used um in in the wrong way in ways that afforded um sort of bad faith lyric um certainties um or bad faith um ethical implications so I wanted to subtitle them so it was clear. I didn't mm-hmm. want to put yeah, them yeah, out yeah, into yeah. the world as bad faith. But yeah. I I felt somehow that it was um, necessary for the reader to, if you like, have a, a tuning fork of, okay, but, but notes can be false notes as well. 
and that the the type of consideration that these poems allow through the form that their language is taking can very easily um, lead us in in wrong direction. I think you've got quite a nice tuning fork for this poem in that in the title. So you have this word, the sanctioned state, and sanctioned is one of those weird words, isn't it, that can mean two opposite things. It can either mean authorize or or mm. ratify, or it could be to penalize. And it strikes me that that's all of a piece with your portrayal of Cromwell as being a part of what he fought for and against, the balanced argument of history and this kind of ambiguity of yeah, stance or perspective you. you're talking that about. that's sort of what I was trying to get at and how I guess we only have states in the sense of, uh, you know, collective unities um, but by agreement, but often it's coerced agreement. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> And then obviously there's a kind of, to a degree, there's also that same dilemma in the word state as there is in the word sanction. So um, the state um, in terms of the overall governing body of a community is one aspect of the word, but the, the word also relates to how we encounter things, you know, just just very simply what is the kind of um what is the lived reality um and i guess that to a certain degree there's always a sort of shuttling back and forth between those two things in sort of existing in the world <laughs> you know there's a there's a sort of shuttling back and forth between well how am i experiencing the world what is my phenomenological kind of like encounter as well as like the external realities that uh, determine that to a large degree. And I think it's a poem that's to a certain degree trying to uh, move back and forth between those, um, those, well, states. I guess in some ways the, the actual, um, the way that this poem came about is also in dialogue with the other poems in the collection, but but um, and in dialogue with the, the sort of formal and stylistic techniques that were being developed in other poems, and a large part of that is a sort of inherently ambiguous um, technique with regard to syntax. So. Um, it was important to me that the poem at various points would allow slippage between one syntactical reading and another so that you could read given lines with one interpreted, one interpretive kind of approach or another that would create an ethical um, navigation that was required by the reader. So, for instance... Uh, you, um, if you think about, uh, we can distinguish one thing from another. Jesus is not Muhammad here, not there. We have the freedom to be appalled. I mean, 
it's easy to read the here, not there in that instance um, as following on from one thing, um, not another. Um, yes. But you could also just as easily read it as here in the presumed UK of the um, place and not there over there yeah. in that other place um, where mm-hmm. bulls temples are being destroyed. We have the freedom to be appalled. Um, now, those two readings, I guess, very much um, change how you then come on to read, we can all agree that this is wrong. And at various points in, in the poems as a whole, uh, I guess I was trying to facilitate that being a problem and a dilemma for the reader. Yeah, so I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, to go and check out the text. You know, Ed, you read it very clearly and deliberately, like one line at a time. So I think we can hear the effect, even in the the little gaps. But it's maybe even more pronounced when you read the poems in the collection that the the break between one line and another often contains a, a surprise that will shift the perspective and the meaning. Um, another way I think you shift perspective in, in an interesting way here is if between what could be called high and low culture. So you start off with the symbol of sanctity, you know, the Virgin Mary, and we've got Cromwell, and then we get the converted church of an all bar one. Now, Ed, perhaps you could gloss that. Yeah, so all bar one is kind of like a, um, it's a sort of chain of rather yuppie pubs. Um, that uh, that sort of predominate, and I think when I, um, I think they must have come about in the in the late nineties. I sort of remember feel they yeah, feel very nineties, and they? I um, I sort of yeah, some of my relating to um, it's not even gentrification; it's just uglification. I mean, I guess that is gentrification. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. They they hold a special place for me personally in in the kind of dislike. Even though I wouldn't say the the, uh, the largest problem <laughs> faced, um, but I suppose um, the reason why I was quite keen on that all bar one um, idea was the in this particular instance I find it it funny. Um, Simply because the the idea of entering a church, you know, if you if you convert a church into a pub and then you call it all bar one, um, <laughs> there is that there's a level of um, irony that is perhaps missed by the people who um, who chose to do it. Right. So there's kind of let's just say there are different different perspectives on desecration in the poem. Indeed. Indeed, and I suppose like that kind of, um, you know, while it as a poem is largely, I suppose, looking at the way that um, religion uh, as the opium of the people uh, might have motivated quite a lot of um, of change, whether for good or ill, um, obviously we live in a time where overridingly that, that's capital, um, that is that is dominating those uh, those decisions, and so I suppose as a kind of as a nod 
to what's really happening today. So if if the poem in some ways is is taking the setting in the UK to be one that is shuttling between uh, the the early 21st century and the mid uh, 17th century, then it's it's also looking at what's happening in the in the uh, Near East and um, it didn't feel appropriate not to make today more present in some ways. And one of the things that, that um, we are faced with is, um, yeah, bad pubs. Yeah, you could argue that it's desecrating the idea of the pub as, it, <laughs> as much as it is of church, because there are good pubs as well as the, um, the corporatized version. Yeah, and I suppose it's like the version of a pub, right? That that has lost all spirit of the pub, mm, you know, like yes, kind of. Yes. I mean, the pub being a place that really is a community, you know, in the in the traditional English setting, um, the pub being a place that comes together largely of of working class people to make change happen. Um, and obviously, there was an awful lot of the puritanical movement that had that in it in the in the mid seventeenth uh, century. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the pressure was was coming from uh, from not the ruling classes. So, although Cromwell himself um, was very much of the ruling classes, like um, you know, an awful lot of the intellectual kind of spirit of the times wasn't. Um, and I guess like an all-ball one is like the desecration yeah. of, of the capacity of the pub to have a place in, in society that is in any way sort of meaningful from a community point of view. Okay, turning to the form of the poem, which we've touched on in a couple of instances already, I think, you know, like a lot of the poems in, for now, the pamphlet, you could describe it as tall and thin. It's in four line stanzas, and but you've got these wonderfully clipped free verse, very short free verse lines. Whereas we've said the um, the movement from one line to another, quite often things happen. You've got, I think, you've got to read this and the other poems in the collection quite slowly and carefully, and savor those little surprises. So I'm assuming, I would guess, quite a lot of work goes into making the text that surprising and that rewarding to read. I mean, how, how close is this to the first draft of what you wrote? Honestly, I can't really remember. Um, I guess that it, it would have gone through quite a few drafts. In general, I, I, I draft and redraft quite a lot. So I imagine that there, there, there is quite a few behind it, but I don't think that it would have been so different in some of the ways because I'd already established quite a lot of the the mode of writing, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're writing in the sort of sort of in a single style, which the poems in in for now are kind of broadly speaking in one kind of way of writing. Um, I think that that had become just how my ear was hearing language mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, and I was sort of 
kind of preoccupied with the way that if you slow language right down and you put a great deal of emphasis on each word, what what different type of facility does that give? Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, it took me quite a long time to write in different ways after after this because I couldn't I, I I'd get a little bit too fascinated by a word, even though I was trying to write in a different style. Right, so I was writing, right. you know, longer and more fluidly mm-hmm. um, and, and in a deliberately less um, halted, grandiloquent manner. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, because my brain had sort of adopted that, yeah. it became quite hard for me to to allow it, you know. Um yeah. So you wouldn't jump from this mode of writing to another one and back again. You you kind of this was a a period of time that you were in this way of looking at language. Yeah, it very much was. It was a period of time and I guess it has informed other work. I mean there's other poems that maybe I mean later this year I'll be publishing a a pamphlet um with Broken Sleep Press. Um, which is a series of sonnets, which are different stylistically, and they mm-hmm. are different in their approach. But they're they're certainly informed by that idea, both in terms of syntactical complexity. Um, when you when you reduce um, the pace of reading and the options to arrange meaning mm-hmm. so that you could you could flow through it in in one reading through the syntax or in a separate reading through the syntax mm-hmm. they they actually take that further than was used in for now um but they feel to me like a different thing like my brain is doing something different when i'm trying to when I was trying to write those, um, you know, like inevitably one always wants to do something that's totally different. So I feel like, um, you know, my aim for a long time after for now was to, I don't know, write, you know, highly descriptive poems in long flowy lines, but I didn't, I didn't manage to do that, unfortunately. But I think what you have managed to do is really worth reading and rereading and and savoring so thank you ed for sharing your thoughts on this and maybe this would be a good time for us to hear it again thank you very much i'm really grateful for the opportunity The Sanctioned State by Edward Doger The Sanctioned State This is deliberate ruin. Here we must imagine her, the symbol of sanctity, from the guesswork of chisel and shot, the removed particulars of lips, nose, eyes, We have to assume her identity from the effort taken to remove it. 
The lack of evidence is evidence of the belief that belief can be beaten out of stone. It sustains. Lord Cromwell remains alive in the currency of language. Warts and all, he stands over us, plinthed and protected, a part of what he fought for and against, the balanced argument of history. We cannot live then. Today, the converted church of an all-bar one desecrates nothing. We can distinguish one thing from another. Jesus is not Muhammad, here, not there. We have the freedom to be appalled for the obsolete God, for the significance destroyed in the columns of Baal's temple. We can all agree that this is wrong, but there is no we, no consensus, just my own finger pointing at an imagined face. The Sanctioned State by Edward Doger is from his pamphlet For Now, published by Clinic. Edward Doger is a poet and editor based in London. He is a consulting editor at the Rialto and was the commissioning editor of the Poetry Translation Centre between 2018 and 2021. His pamphlet For Now was published by Clinic in 2017 and a text written in collaboration with the artist Shakib Abu Hamdan was published by Kelder Press in 2022. His latest work, Sonnets, will be published by Broken Sleep Books in 2023. He is a fellow of the Complete Works. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.